Hello, and welcome to Sound Piece, a podcast about contemporary sound artworks. I'm Adam Farkas. I'm Sean Griffiths. And today we're talking with Elisa Harkins. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome, Elisa. Thank you. Or, yeah, as we say in Muskogee Creek, Mudo. Thank you. <laughs> nice. Well, one of the places I thought would be interesting to start is to like contextualize the, the song within the larger project. Right. Yeah. Well, this is um, a newer song. I worked with a Seminole and Pawnee artist. He is called Black Tiger, and he made the beat for me. It was really nice to collaborate with another Indigenous person. I'm Cherokee in Muskogee Creek. And so, yeah, the song was made, you know, during quarantine. Uh, I'm in Oklahoma, and uh, we recently opened up uh, in June, June 1st. But prior to that, I was just staying at home and working on music. And so, yeah, the song is about like a Native girl and she meets an indigenous boy who's kind of traditional and then she falls in love. And then she says, one of the lyrics is, you are Haliswa and Haliswa in Muskogee Creek is medicine. So he uh, is her medicine, which is maybe different in uh, indigenous culture. I guess in a more Western setting, we would maybe think of it as something negative, like gross. But in um, indigenous culture, uh, medicine is maybe something that's more for healing. And so that's the gist of the song. But yeah, it's part of a larger project that I've been working on called Wampum. And for that piece, it has different iterations. One has like two backup dancers, two non-Indigenous backup dancers. And yeah, it's um, it's disco. It's like a, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's a, it's a Cherokee Muskogee Creek disco party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that there's kind of a lot I want to unpack in that. Maybe maybe two particular things. And I think the first thing to start with is is, is why disco? Like, why have it be kind of poppy and disco-like? Right. That was a really intentional... Um, that was a really intentional decision to make. And it's interesting uh, where disco exists in the mind, I guess. So Giorgio Moroder said that disco is the music of the future. Um, so even though we consider like uh, indigenous people to kind of have this history, have this really troubled history, and we think of them as existing in the past, and we think of them as like mm-hmm. still doing these um, old, you know, hundreds of year old practices. Uh, I also try to think of uh, indigenous people as being in the future and futuristic. Uh-huh. I keep thinking trance. It's very synth heavy, a lot of the tracks. Does that, does that inflection matter at all? Or? Well, I, for me, it's, it's also about like minimalism a little bit. Hmm. So if I listen to like Terry Riley and I listen to a Giorgio Moroder track, I find a lot of similarities and uh, there's a lot of sort of infinite space, I guess. Like a, a disco track 
could go on for 30 minutes, um, mm-hmm. like a trance track. But in minimalism, it's sort of the same thing. And it's this repetition and this this beat. And I also kind of feel like the key is similar to something about the melodies that are used. So mm-hmm. um, I find, yeah, I find that interesting. And also house music. Because house music, yeah. there's really long house music tracks. And they're very, yeah, they make a hypnotic state. Yeah. Yeah. That was the yeah. connection so, I was feeling that I was wondering about. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're saying, like, the, it's it's about trance, house, disco, all kind of, and, and like, kind of, like, the 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 things that you're making me need to speak about, like, refer to a, a kind of mental kind of, like, trance, like, like it, it's it feels like like what you're saying is that like you're you're finding those kinds of songs as having legs for what you're doing because it's allowing for a kind of like internal uh, internalization of that music a kind of like like embodying it in a way because I think that's what trance music does hmm. maybe I'm maybe I'm reading into that a little bit more like but, hypnotic but I, yeah, well, yeah, I yeah. like that I mean I I I it does some of the music is a little bit uh meant to be hypnotizing um there's a track called bear hunting song and it's 12 minutes long and it's a house music track and i'm just saying die don't die don't die pretty much the whole song and then the hook is uh get the money get the money yeah but it's it's an interesting people say that when they see it performed they do go into some sort of hypnosis. Mm-hmm. This is the same song you used. Um, it's for the. Uh, it was the performance for Fake. It is, yeah. Right. So that was um, that was my first song and my first sort of performance that I would consider um, part of this Wampum project. Right. And that was my first performance as a grad student at CalArts in oh, okay. Los Angeles. Yeah, I think like this is a great point to kind of talk about the second thing I wanted to bring up was about the performances because I I really enjoy watching them and I'm I feel it's unfortunate that I haven't seen any in person cuz I feel like they would be really impactful in a, in a different way than they are in video. And I I'm curious to hear about how you feel or your understanding of like the piece in these these other works as songs that stand alone that you would hear as songs as opposed to like them being performed or recorded. Like, it, it, is there a preferred kind of venue for them or what things do you gain or lose by switching contexts? Well, I mean, I think the main thing for me is to preserve the language and, uh, or languages, both languages, Cherokee and Muscogee yeah. Creek. And, so by publishing these songs and having them out in the world and having their own lives outside of me is important. And actually, I just found out yesterday, I have a song called Magitha, which means deceitful one. And it's about Trump. And I wrote it. <laughs> nice. I wrote it a few months ago. And somehow it's starting to get radio play. So like serious XM is playing it and nice. I'm getting I'm, I'm getting like I'm getting hits in like London and I don't know who decided that this song in Muscogee Creek in English resonated with them 
this it's it's like um it's a I call them the angry robot songs. They're um they're the character she's she's hundreds of years old and she's a cyborg and she was turned into a cyborg hundreds of years ago by time travelers who went back in time to turn her into a cyborg to colonize her to enslave her and she has so she has preserved the language so she knows Muscogee Creek she knows Cherokee yeah. and she she has seen all these atrocities she's traveled from Alabama on the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma and she does she hates Trump and <laughs> so she has this she has a song about him uh that's in English and Creek and you know she's so she has this robot vocoder voice mm -hmm. so she's she has this robot voice and she's singing about you know about how ashamed he should be of himself and that no one should trust him and you know just how deceitful he is and um so i'm i don't know i'm i'm i I hope that I guess the message got through to someone out there. So it's like mm -hmm. it's like out in rotation, which is which is nice, you know. Yeah, and I mean th that totally is in line, I think, with the things you were saying earlier about thinking about like indigenous futurism. Yeah, I, that wasn't the term exactly you used, I think, but yeah, I mean, I think that um, that term is starting to get some traction sometimes when I when I give a lecture, mm -hmm. the art students are like, what is indigenous futurism? You see them like writing it down. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say that it's sort of in the same vein as Afrofuturism. There's uh, a school in Montreal, Concordia, and they have um, like a whole department sort of dedicated to indigenous futurism in a very academic sort of sense and so yeah I've been thinking about that embracing it and thinking about um yeah how I use disco the use of dance music the use of storytelling the use of science fiction narrative to try to tell indigenous stories and to sort of even bring myself as like a musician into the present because somehow I feel like uh, indigenous artists, we kind of, we're always kind of put into the past in some weird way. And I even had a, mm -hmm. I even had a meeting recently with a museum where they were questioning that the work was indigenous futurism because it dealt with the trail of tears. Like it even, because it brings up so much history this futurism, that how is it really in the future? Um, mm -hmm. But mm. Uh, I mean, for me, it's almost like um, like a literal futurism. Like I want the language to go into the future, and so I am, you know, sort of making these little songs as time capsules, and like, you know, these are for people to listen to in the future. Mm -hmm. One thing you didn't mention that I was, I felt like was such a, I kind of fell down the rabbit hole of your Vimeo feed. And the, as I got further and further back, I noticed how much humor and sort of satire, um, sort of like ironic 
distance was in the early work. And I was curious, do you feel like, has that changed? Is it just inflecting itself differently? Or how do you, how do you think about your use of humor in your work now? I, I do, I do think of it differently now. I do have a different kind of sense of ability to be irreverent. I think, I think because I am in my tribal communities now and I, I hang out with a lot of elders and I don't, I find, I don't know. Actually they were, one of my elders was really into the fake piece with the white headdress and he, he loved it. He, mm -hmm. yeah. But I think that I'm at a place right now where I want to really um, honor the community and honor, do things that I feel like put everyone in the best light. But I do think that humor is a way to like bring people in and is also like a valuable way of storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I just thought that was interesting. I mean, the, the thread was still there. It was just the strategy felt so different. It felt, and I, I was going to say sincere, but it makes it sound like I'm trying to say the early work was insincere, which is not what I mean, but there was definitely a maybe an earnest well, earnestness or something maybe the, is the better the word. Thing, the thing that has changed from that work to now is, okay, so the fake work, mm -hmm. I was not enrolled and I didn't know who my parents were. So I was adopted. Right. And I don't, so I didn't know who my parents were. And then I was really struggling. I was like, am I even indigenous? Mm -hmm. What is going on here? Can I really make work about indigeneity? And so it was, it's really kind of, yeah, making fun of myself and making fun of these laws and making fun of, yeah, enrollment and the federal government being in charge of who's indigenous, who's not indigenous. But then once I was enrolled and I, and I met my mother, I'm getting ready to meet my father on Saturday. Uh, oh, exciting. Yeah, we yeah. are going to go to a stomp dance that is at our family's uh, ceremonial grounds, um, mm. which is, you know, completely new to me, completely exciting. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's these things that I never thought would happen, that would never be available to me that I'm like so grateful for. So there's sort of like less of sort of like a self, I don't, a self-examination or self-criticism or, um, but yeah, there's certainly room for those things. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm trying to like formulate a, a question out of this. Cause I, I think there's an interesting thing in that I'm going to talk through it and maybe I'll find the question when I talk through it. It seems like you're, like you're saying that something changed once you were finding community mm -hmm. that gave you a different perspective on, on what you were doing. And I, I guess like, I don't know, I guess, I guess like that's just the thing about how identity is constructed. Like, like thinking about it as like it being inflected or kind of changed by the community that you're in or the community that you've like found yourself in or chosen to be in. Um, like I might think of it in relation to 
uh, coming out and being queer and then like then finding a family that I didn't really have before. And then that changing the way that I understand myself. Um, right. It gives you a certain kind of confidence. Yeah. And you, you're, you know yourself. You know who you are. Yeah. Totally. Huh. That was the part that resonated with me the most because I feel like I'm half Chinese, but I don't speak Chinese. My mom raised me to disconnect me from the culture purposefully to make me American. And so it was like, you know, when I'm my cousins, I don't speak Chinese or my aunties or whatever. And so there's always like, I'm Chinese, but am I Chinese? Like, what does it mean to be Chinese if I don't have any of the cultural practices other than I eat my mom's food? Or, um, And that was like a thing like when I was watching your 1-800-FAKE, uh, the call line where you turned yourself in. Um, I thought like a lot of that was just resonating. I mean, not in such a specific sense. I feel like in a way yours was even more complicated by you know, the Anglo parents and the adoption and those things where it's like you really had no connection in a way or um, were much further removed in a way. But I thought that was interesting. I, I found it to resonate for me as like strange how we construct these identities and how like they're rooted in traditions and but sort of not and through, you know, biology or something like like who your parents are really. Right. I mean... I I feel like I want to give you some advice. <laughs> yeah, give me advice. <laughs> I mean, I I I think um yeah, my parents really 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 didn't want me to meet my biological parents and it has been life-changing. What was the reasoning for that if you don't mind me asking? Cuz you mentioned that in the in the talk, but you didn't exactly I mean, you don't have to get into it if it's personal. I was just curious. Well, they I think that they were worried that I don't know. They seem to be worried that my biological parents would want, well, first of all, it would be disappointing or would want money or, right. yeah, just, and I, I think also they were, um, I think that they were envious. Hmm. So, hmm they were afraid that they would be just super jealous. But um, yeah, all of that changed. And my dad, <laughs> my dad uh, showed me my birth mom and we were at a McDonald's and he, <laughs> he said, this is, this is your biological mom and I'm just going to give you her information and that's that. And just pointed hmm. her out like at a random occurrence. Yeah, and um, didn't tell my mom, didn't tell, uh, yeah, my mom, his wife. And so, yeah, months later, maybe six months later, I contacted her and we met. And yeah, and then, and then we told my mom. But um, it wasn't as uh, upsetting to my mom as I thought it would be, and they seemed to be really rolling with it and it's been really good to um you know learn the language and get back in touch with community and it really does like give me so much more confidence and mm -hmm. so much more confidence in my work and just even like maneuvering through the world it it just feels a lot better so 
I know That's great. your mom may be apprehensive for you to learn more, but I think overall it really will help you grow as a person. It'll make you a whole person, you know? <laughs> just for the record, she doesn't, I, she's not like actively preventing it currently. She just didn't, as a child, it was not a, you know, it was like an invisible thing that was happening. We just didn't speak Chinese. Yeah. So. Enough about me. <laughs> uh, what's going on with you in Tulsa? Are you doing anything exciting in there right now? Uh, it's been an eventful few days, I guess. Um, yeah, because Trump was just there. Oh, oh right. Yeah. I forgot. <laughs> Trump was just here. And yeah. um, we were all kind of encouraged to stay away from the BOK Center and mm -hmm. um, stay away from downtown and maybe go out to Greenwood for some Juneteenth um, celebrations uh, and to socially distance. And so Friday I went to the Ju Juneteenth celebration and I saw uh, Reverend Al Sharpton speak and it was really amazing. And then the next day I was going to maybe meet some friends in Greenwood and my friend, my friend, actually the one who made the beat for falling, he said, okay, I'm coming, I'm coming over there with my son. And so I was going to meet them at my apartment building, but they actually parked and jumped out and joined some people marching. So then I, I walked over and we were going to come back to the, my apartment and we, but we ended up driving they wanted to see the BOK Center. So I said, okay, we'll, we'll drive over there. So we drove over there, and people were marching. So we parked, and we got out, and we marched. And um, nice. <laughs> Which, you know, I had told so many people that I was not going to do. But, yeah, it was, it was pretty awesome. Uh, so my friend and his son, they do, like, hand drum and they sing, and the there were some American Indian movement members there, the AIM members, and so they were singing too, and um, and then I was singing along too, and then uh, so we we saw Trump's motorcade go by, which is interesting. There was like a little bit of a scuffle with the police. The police were hmm. throwing tear gas. And so there was a little bit of a standoff with the police, and it was kind of amazing. My friend was like, Greenwood, Greenwood, and then everyone turned around, and we started marching towards Greenwood. And then we, we were walking up Greenwood, and my friend and his son, they're like drumming and singing, and we meet the, everyone who's like hanging out in Greenwood, and then they kind of join us and everyone like joins together. And then it's this crazy party, this crazy, beautiful, huge celebration. Mm -hmm. Like we won, we got him out of there. You know, there were more of us than him. It was like really uplifting. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really great. 
Yeah. God bless K-pop, I guess. Yeah, no kidding. Right. <laughs> right. TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, things are things are interesting here. Um let's see. But. Yeah, yesterday I heard that Megitha is on um Sirius XM. Like, okay, cool. And then uh, I got a message from one of my friends. And there's a, a track that I produced for my friend Travis Mamaday for a video piece that I made called Honor Beats. And there's a, a Universal Pictures movie starring Tom Hanks that wants to use the song. That's amazing. Great. <laughs> and I, <laughs> and um, Get that money. <laughs> Get the money. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm, I've been doing this project. Um, I'm starting to work on a project called Teach Me a Song, where I ask different indigenous people to teach me a song, and I trade them a song, which um, usually I trade them like a Muscogee Creek hymn. We have our own church service, and we have our own uh, hymns that we sing that are in Muscogee Creek. So yeah, usually uh, there's, a, there's a really old practice of uh, indigenous song trading uh, as currency. Mm. Uh, I'm like, as currency, maybe as sort of um, kinship practice, social kind of engagement, I guess. Like gift anyway. exchange even. Yeah. So, so yeah, so for this project, I asked people to teach me a song and then I videotape them and uh, record them. And so, yeah, I've been thinking, I'm, part of the project is to put the recordings out into the world. Mm -hmm. so, I'm, so I'm like, okay, maybe this is a learning experience for if, if those recordings are also interesting to the movie industry or something like that. But yeah, it's been... It's been an interesting couple days. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it. It sounds like an exciting time. <laughs> um, I don't know, Sean. Do you have any other any other things you want to ask, or Lisa? Do you have any things you want to talk about? Um. Yeah, I'm not sure. Is there anything we need to say about the song that would be right? Yeah. Well, I I would like to um maybe say the lyrics. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Okay. Please. This song is in English and Muscogee Creek, and it's called Falling. Holy motor, figi harjo, which means crazy heart. You are haliswa, and haliswa means medicine. I am falling, falling. Ja let guess, I am falling. I could feel the pain. It was a different time, and I was so alone. I was ili ski, which is pauti or sulky, until you found me in jaja fek nijis, which is I am healing. And then at the end, I say jabani, which is boy, and daskira, which is to jump or leap. And yikchida, which is to be strong, and yaskida, which is to be humble. 
And those are the lyrics in English and Muskogee Creek. Mado, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Sweet. Yeah. Maybe do you want to tell people where they can find your work? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. If you want to find more of my work, you can find it on Bandcamp, which is elisaharkins.bandcamp.com, or you can go to my website, which is elisaharkins.org. Uh, thanks, Elisa, for talking to us. I think on that, we're going to sign off. Thank you for your time, Elisa. Yeah, thank, yeah, thank you. you so much. Nice to meet yeah. you. Nice. It was really, yeah, nice to meet you, too. It was really fun.